What did you do in the Great War, Grandpa? Well, I put a Facebook rainbow up. We fought for That's our a... civil rights while sitting on the couch. There was no hashtag for that, sweetie. All right, you ready? Yes. Okay, today is Monday, June 28, 2015, and this is episode 121 of the Defensive Security Podcast. Nice palindrome there. And my name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Jerry, how are you? Doing awesome. How are you? Happy Monday to you. I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm finally over my plague that I appeared to have for months. Well, good. Good. Polar, polar bear flu is gone now. Yeah. I, you know, don't French kiss a polar bear. That's what I learned. You know, they they, they should teach you that in school. But it's, it's, I'll tell you, it's been a very eventful week in the news. It, it has. Yes, it has. And we're not covering any of that. Nope, 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 nope. <laughs> well, I mean, except for maybe some of the security-related stuff. Well, yes. There's been, there's been a, a decent amount of A few, a few so. things. So uh, before we get started into that, uh, first order of business is that the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer. And the second order of business is a uh, the periodic reminder about the High Tech Crime Investigation Association. Uh, HTCIAConference.org happens August 30th through September 2nd, Orlando, Florida. Tickets are 750 bucks. We gave away our ticket. And um, I conveniently don't have the name right now, so sorry. Well, perhaps I chose to be anonymous. Yeah. But congrats to our to our winner. That's right. So, um, so yeah, uh, getting into our stories for this evening. The first one comes from databreaches.net, and this is what appears to be a bulletin from the FBI, issued by the FBI, and they have a link to the actual uh, PDF. This is a flash that the FBI puts out occasionally, and allegedly it contains some information about the uh, the, the tools and some of the techniques used in the OPM breach. And to be perfectly honest, the you know the the indicators are kind of yawners. <laughs> like you know, um, what what I thought was way more interesting was their um, their recommendations. So they they have uh, they have a list of recommended mitigations. Uh, but I guess before I get into there, they, uh, the, assuming this was the OPM breach, there was quite a lot of uh, of Trojans, and uh, one piece of malware which appears to be a, um, a a privilege escalation bug. You know, there's really no context about whether it was exploiting zero days or how it how it came to be in their network. Um, I think we can all use our imagination that it was probably an email. <laughs> um, 
I, I'm stunned to hear uh, that. I, I know, I know, I know. Or, or or maybe, you know, it came from the Secretary of State network or, uh, you know, who knows, right? Well, you know, the challenge is that if it started with an email, a lot of times these, these fishes then capture legitimate credentials, which make it, you know, much tougher to spot once they start being used. Absolutely. That is for sure. And, uh, and in fact, I think the, the, um, the OPM breach, at least uh, one, of the, one of the reports, which I think we talked about last time, there was a domain found, like opmtraining.com, which you know, there appears to be linked to, um, at least superficially linked to the Anthem and the Primera breach. So uh, almost certainly involving credential harvesting through phishing and, and probably also uh, planting malware. You know, this is like garden variety stuff anymore. Um, anyway, uh, so so some of the some of the recommendations I thought were were actually quite good. So I don't know if you had a chance to read them, but um, yep. Uh, you know that the, the first section was related to preparing your environment for incident response. And I've talked about this a couple of times. And one of the important things when you have a really or or suspect a somewhat widespread uh, outbreak or a breach is to establish an out-of-band communication method between your staff because you don't want to well, use your email. Right? Shouldn't technically you have that established ahead of time anyway? Yeah, Absolutely. I mean yeah. that would be that would be better, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good but, idea. You know, worst case, if you haven't, go ahead and establish it before the you know too far into the breach. Sure, but right. Uh, I mean, we saw a case not too long ago that we covered on the show where uh, the bad guys had taken over the email system, and as the IT and security departments were trying to email updates out, the bad guys were then sending follow-up emails posing as the security team contramanding and such, which was epic. Yeah, so. that was the uh, Syrian Electronic Army. They, yeah. they are they are really good at that. They're clever. Um, so uh, the, their next, next piece of advice was to make sure that your devices are all logging centrally. Um, that's hopefully not a big revelation. Um, it, disable all remote access, so RDP and VPN, and God, I hope people aren't exposing RDP to the internet. But anyway, uh, uh, disabling all remote access until a password change has been completed. What if you're using two-factor? Um, well, I, that certainly is a pretty big mitigation. And I, God, I hope you're using two-factor. Yeah. Please, um, oh, please. Please, oh, please. Especially if you're doing RDP. Well. Talk about playing with matches. Mm. Wow. Um so, so uh, next one I thought was really interesting and kind of controversial. Implement full SSL t- slash TLS inspection capability. No, this is so key. I was having a discussion on this the other day. If you encrypt everything everywhere, you blind a ton of your security devices. You've got to be able to look at this traffic. Otherwise, you're, in essence, completely encrypting the attack against the web server and all of your other technology to help defend the web server, whether it be IPSs, whether it be uh, web application firewalls. If, if it can't look inside that TLS session to find attacks, it's doing you no good. Yeah. And I think the other, the other side of it, too, is 
when you look back up above in this advisory, they give you some, uh, you know, s- some indicators of compromise, which appear to be things to look for, um, you know, be- your host beaconing out. Right. And again, if those are TLS encrypted, you know, you're going to see the destination, but you're not going to see, you're not going to see inside the packet. So that's, um, that is, a, that is a big problem. But at the same time, you know, it's kind of controversial uh, to be to be candid, especially in other countries. If you have, for instance, European operations, uh, you know th- this kind of capability is pretty controversial. Yeah, that may be the trade-off you have to make. Yeah. But I, if anything, I just want people to think about how holistically all these different technologies are going to work together, and and understand. Great, you have a DLP solution that's watching the network, except all the network traffic passing that point is encrypted. encrypted. What is that DLP doing for you? Right? Yeah, exactly. You just have to, it, and because so many people just check the box. Well, you know, hey, we've got DLP, but is it doing anything? <laughs> it's checking the box. And, it, and, it, you know, and again, if that's your case, you should be shopping for price, right? So, uh, so the, the next uh, recommendation is to monitor accounts and devices determined to be part of the compromise to prevent reacquisition attempts. And so this is a this actually is something that's that's really very important in uh, you know in the heat of an incident when you quite often you'll 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 find a system that's been compromised and and potentially accounts that have been compromised and usually you'll you know if you, if you're diligent you'll reset passwords and things like that but you you know depending on your philosophy and how you approach remediation if you do reset a password you'll want to watch to see if if it's you know if somebody's trying to take it back uh, and then figure out how they are how they're doing that Um, now having said that i think that you know in in many respects now granted this is probably not feasible in a large organization but it's very difficult um nay impossible to uh you know to incrementally eradicate something that's really pervasive from a network you know you almost really need to do a big bang shut it all off clean it all up turn it back on and for Pete's sake don't try to clean your computers it worked for Airwolf when it had Moffat's ghost. Jeez. Oh, boy. So, uh, so yeah. But two thoughts on this. The monitoring count device is determined. Um, that's great. I, I would wager that you probably don't know all the accounts and devices that were compromised. So No, and that's my, that's my point. That's my yeah. point. But, but I, what, they're on a very specific, they're on a very specific point there. And that is, yeah. you know, if you've, if you've, have determined that a account was used, you know, watch that account to see if people are trying to grab it again. Yeah, it becomes like a little mini honey... Honeypot, right. Yeah, exactly. or honey account, honey data, whatever you want to call it. Yep. Uh, which makes sense. Uh, next is to implement core mitigations to inhibit re-exploitation. And I think that's kind of like the, you know, the question mark, question mark, question mark. That you know, you got to figure that out for yourself, and then implement a network-wide password reset, preferably with localhost access only, no remote changes allowed. Uh, to include domain accounts, local admin accounts, and machine and system accounts. 
Which, that is a huge ask for most organizations. Which I was just about to say is going to break everything. <laughs> wow, I don't disagree, but wow, that's going to break a lot of shit. Yeah, it's going to break. Especially the, the, uh, the machine system accounts. Yep. I yep. bet, I would wager most organizations have no idea the impact that would have. Yeah, and uh, I, you know, I've, I have worked on incidents where... Um, you know where we strongly encouraged the customer to change their password. Uh, you know for for service accounts and and uh, machine accounts like this. And nope, too you know too much uncertainty. Yeah. You know that system's been there for ten years. The people who wrote it are long gone. We're not changing that password. You know that's one where you really would like to have a good solid privileged account management system in place. Yeah. That could handle that. Uh, and or test this like you would test DR. Yeah, you know the thing that a lot of these things, by the way, make me realize that you know this is so much of this stuff comes into into play when you're just fundamentally designing your IT infrastructure. And you know the thing that all that, that just comes to mind is that chaos monkey. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know. Which, it, for folks who, who may not recall, it was... It's Netflix. Netflix has a script that will go around, and if I remember correctly, randomly turn off various virtual hosts in their cloud environment. Uh, and the concept is that you have to design from the get-go a resilient, self-healing failover architecture. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's brilliant. I love that. Yep. Uh, and I bet 99.9% of organizations wouldn't possibly be able to sustain that. And so I guess my, my point is it should not be a big secret to anybody that these service accounts are problematic. And if you design that, that capability in, that you're going to have to change them periodically and, and maybe on a moment's notice, you, you're probably going to implement things a little differently than you otherwise would. But let's be honest, the average Windows admin doesn't think that way. No, I, just don't. I, I agree. I agree. And this, is, this, again, goes back to one of the things that I think we need to fundamentally work on in security, and that is um, making the, you know, the line administrators and architects, IT administrators and IT architects, very familiar with, you know, not the, not the in-depth of how these attacks work, but that they exist. That you that you have to think about these sorts of things, because yeah. I I just I I think they're blissfully well not not all right, but many are blissfully ignorant. Yeah, they're probably incredibly good Windows admins who just have never been exposed, or it's never been a core part of their function to care about security side of things and so it's just not what they're paid to do yeah and, and i just want to say if you happen to be an administrator listening to this podcast we're not talking about you because the fact that you're listening to this podcast tells us that you care about security yes which is good and but it's a tough it's a tough gig so you know to give those guys some credit they have to have a ton of very specific knowledge that a lot of security guys don't have Right. Absolutely. 
and, and there's a finite amount of skill set any one person can possess. So then it comes back to, okay, then it's a matter of design. It's a matter of leadership in the right core competencies coming in at the right moment. So maybe it's more about designing from the beginning with the concept of you tell the Windows admins, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter why, but know that these accounts may change password on a quarterly basis. Plan for that. Exactly. Right. You know, without having to put into their head all of the knowledge necessary for them to make that inference. Right. Anyway. So moving on, um, Pat, next recommendation was to patch all systems for critical vulnerabilities and implement EMET, the Microsoft Enhanced Mitigation Exploit. Also something that will break a whole bunch of things. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that the default configuration breaks a bunch. You can you can use Emet to like crater your computer. Uh, well, okay, don't get me wrong. I like Emet. I think it's good. I'm just saying this isn't a set and forget. It, you've got to know what you're doing with Emet. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's, it's a good powerful but, tool. Yeah, it's it's not you just load it and go to go to lunch. That's right. Not not the not the scenario here. Right. Um, but you know, again, um, what. What occurred to me when I when I try to reconcile uh, at least the patch you know patching all your vulnerabilities, particularly patching critical vulnerabilities, with what we saw up above in some of the some of the malware that was being used. You know, I I suspect that it's quite likely the case that some of that malware didn't require the system to be unpatched or. Or, you know, the thing that I often see is that, you know, local privilege escalations are not considered critical. And and so, you know, hey, we've, you know, we've patched all our criticals, we have our administrator, or we have our uh, our user base does not have local admin rights, and we don't consider local privesc to be critical. So, so, yeah, there you go. Uh, next would next uh, recommendation is to encrypt your data, and I want one thing I want to point out is not only encrypt your data but uh, implement some key management, right? I mean, don't don't encrypt your data and put the keys right next to it. You know, think about it a little bit. Yeah, maybe maybe like think through your entire key management lifecycle. Yeah. Yeah, not that I've ever seen that go horribly wrong. Nope, never. Uh, next is implement long. Oh yeah, yeah. so uh, they have some long-term mitigation recommendations, uh, which are number one to protect your protect your credentials uh, through least privilege and restriction of local accounts. Nothing surprising there. Limit lateral movement and. You know, this is where I think it starts to get kind of interesting. They're, they are starting to recognize something that I've been saying, that Active Directory is a force for evil sometimes. Uh, and, and so they're, they're pointing out that you really need to think through how you architect your Active Directory. Uh, and, and that kind of goes back, or it goes into the, the next point, which is to uh, you know, segregate your admin access you know and um i they had a couple of good points in here especially down in the the uh, the next major bullet which is related to network segregation 
and that is to ensure that your unpri- or, or, or less privileged accounts cannot access privileged systems by means of network controls, and that your privileged accounts, this is probably even, the mo- even more critical, your privileged accounts cannot access unprivileged or, or lower privileged devices. And the, I think the big part of that is because you have credential threat, theft problems on those less secured, uh, those less secured systems. So, but man, is that counterintuitive to most admins? Oh, it is, and it takes. You know, it's it's not the most straightforward thing to design. And again, this comes back to you know the point that these are some really fundamental design points in uh, you know in your IT environment. These are not like you know we're going to come in and install some IPSs and firewalls. You know, we're from security. We're here to help. No, this is like from the ground up when you're when you're designing your Active Directory forest, when you are laying out your network, when you're figuring out where your your uh, workstations are going to live versus your domain controllers versus your servers. You know, that's these are really important design points that are going to help you. And it's it's interesting to see. This is really the first time I've actually seen this in a government publication. So I'm. You know, maybe there's others, but you know, there it is. Um, yeah, perimeter filtering—that's pretty basic. Uh, application whitelisting, and yet another plug for Emet. Uh, and then centralizing all of your uh, logs and implementing a standard baseline. So you know, using uh, uh, standard images, things like that. So. I thought this was a great a great document which for me to say that about an FBI flash is saying something. So they finally got you. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and we're not even supposed to read it, so you know, there's that. Ah, Jerry, if they've kidnapped your child, blink twice. <laughs> oh boy. So um if, there, is, if there's someone there with a gun, blink three times. Can't do it, man. Wow. So, so anyway, any uh, any final thoughts on that one? That was good. Uh, there's some good stuff in here. Uh, I agree. It's these are non-trivial recommendations, though. But the one thing I go back to is on the DMZ isolation is, you know, really, really, really test that you've got your firewall firewall rule set up properly to actually limit and actually make the DMZ useful as a DMZ. There are so many times that. I have seen firewall rules that either they're poorly or misconfigured, poorly configured. People didn't really understand the data flows, and those rules are far too open and not nearly restrictive enough, especially for DMZs. And so it's really not buying you much. But it gives you a false sense of security because you've got a firewall there and you're isolating. And unless you really, really dig down into the rules or have a good automated auditing system, most people think they're fine and they're not. Yeah, and and also understand take some time to understand how lateral movement can happen um i I, you know i have worked on a number quite a number of incidents in the past and one thing that is um, painfully clear to me is that people do not generally understand all of the opportunity 
to move laterally from one network that they th- think is isolated from other parts of the network, uh, and and it really isn't. And you know, it's it's not the firewall rules are operating as intended. They, you know, the the organization and the administrators believed they pared it down to what was minimally necessary. Maybe it was right, but it was too much. And and some horrible horrible things happened. Yeah, I agree. And I think this is a great case for you know I'm not a big fan of just throwing pen tests at problems, but having your own red team guys on staff to really adversarially test that sort of stuff, I think is really helpful. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So um, so yeah, I mean that that. I guess the 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 kind of goes back to my 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 big theme for the evening, I suppose, and that is it it really helps to have some kind of an understanding about how these attacks work. So you you have a you know you have an opportunity to design around those things. So anyway, moving on to our next story, uh, this comes from Fortune magazine, and. It's a three-part, three-part story regarding the Sony hack, and each one of the three parts is incredibly long. Um, and, and we already burned a half hour on the last story. That's right. And <laughs> I'm not, I am, I'm not really going to spend a ton of time. There aren't a lot of technical details, um, uh, you know, uncovered in this report. There are a lot. It's just a fantastic read. Um, I, as a, as somebody in IT security, it is a fantastic read. It kind of points out some of the, the subtleties that can happen when all of your email is, you know, <laughs> is made public. Um, can, can I, can I talk about Norse? Yes, that was going to be my, my next stop. I so re- go ahead. I really want to. So I uh, completely echoing and agree with you that it's, it's a good read. Um, but the article opens with Norse Corp, who, if you don't know them, they're a fairly small uh, threat intelligence startup. Has a fantastic blog, by the way. I got to give them props. Oh, for the absolutely, blog. yeah. But the beginning of the article is basically Norse Corp relaying their experiences going for a pitch meeting at Sony Entertainment. Uh, which okay, great. But mere, think about mere weeks before the the big Me, event. Weeks before. So, the first thought I had was, "Wow, Norse Corp just completely spilled the beans but, on a private infosec focused meeting." Yeah, I will never invite them to my organization if they're willing to go babble to the press if I have a problem shortly thereafter, because they have very unflattering things to say, and. Mind you, I have spent 10 years in sales, and sales guys will name drop like their life depends on it, and they violate NDAs left and right, and here it is in writing. Yeah, I, I got a little shocked, says Tony, Tony Stainson, Norse's co-founder and chief technology officer. Their InfoSec was empty, and their screens were logged in. Basically, the janitor can walk straight into their InfoSec department. If we were bad guys, we could have done something horrible. There is just a lack of ethics to me in the fact that they were willing to say that about a potential customer. And to me, that really is a red flag 
about using a company like that. I think that's really, really poor form for them to have done that. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I like to hope that there was more to the story about how that quote came to be, but yeah, it's really hard to defend. It, having been in sales for 10 years, you do not violate your customers' privacy. Uh, you know, customers. unless, I, I guess the only thing I could say is maybe they got permission from Sony to talk about it. I don't know. That is possible. I would doubt it. Uh, but if that is the case, then I would apologize to Norscorp. But I would need to see proof of that. It more feels like a hit job from Norris talking about their experience. P- piling on. Un- <laughs> piling yeah, piling on. on yeah. Talking about how unprofessional and insecure Sony's InfoSec department is. And we could just walk right in. And, you know, when you invite a vendor into your work, you trust them. And and you even if without an NDA or anything like that, there's an implicit agreement that if you're going to open the kimono and talk about your problems with that particular vendor, they don't go blab about it to everybody. Right. So I was really disappointed in Norse Corp for, you know, jumping on the bandwagon. Not that Sony doesn't deserve people piling on them, um, but you know this is this is pretty bad. It's it's sort of you know. It's like when Home Depot got halved and all the ex-employees came out of the woodwork to slam Home Depot. Again, poor form, but that I can almost understand because that's employee-employer relations and you know there was a lot of burned people. Companies should not, especially sales organizations for InfoSec companies, should not be participating in this sort of gossiping. Yeah. All right, that's completely secondary to the point, but I did really want to point that out. So... So um, in part two, there's a, just a fantastic paragraph because they're, they, they are building up, uh, and most most listeners probably are very familiar, they're building up the story about how the malware propagated out to all, you know, well, not all, but uh, many of their their PCs and, and wiped them. And when they rebooted, they were unbootable. And, you know, holy cow, that's really advanced. But I want to read this. To avoid... The detection uh, to avoid detection, the hackers immediately exited Sony's network after launching their destruction. The malware reported back to command and control servers out in cyberspace, allowing the intruders, wherever they were, to tally up their digital toll. Hackers typically use the simplest means necessary to accomplish their mission, and experts say there was nothing particularly sophisticated about the Sony hack. Ed Scotus, a white hat hacker who teaches cyber defense testing for corporate IT security professionals at the Sands Institute, says the skill level deployed at Sony looks pretty average. He puts its perpetrators on par with students in his mid-level classes. It shows the defenses at, Sony's, at Sony were not particularly good, says Scotus. I didn't see the bad guys jumping over any extreme hurdles because there weren't any extre- extreme hurdles in place. Wow. Nice. So, uh, so yeah, take that, put that in your nation state pipe and smoke it, right? Sony truther. <laughs> oh boy. So, uh, um, hopefully, Ed listens to the show and he'll he'll appreciate our job. yeah good good job, Ed. Yes. Um. <laughs> damn, I I I've been just amazed at that quote since I read it. Um, but but anyhow, uh, you know, one of the more interesting things I found about this is kind of the the human story 
the the human saga with their CEO and president and and the the back and forth and how their CEO was you know throughout this event trying to find a new job and uh and then eventually decided to stay and um you know again there there weren't any like major revelations on how this uh particular breach happened uh, but there were a couple of things that I I noticed um you know one of them was that Sony apparently <laughs> uh had it had been uh, common practice to use email as a long long-term storage device. I think that's incredibly common. Yeah, and and in fact they apparently they there was some uh some effort to to try to cut back on that in some of the email that was disclosed was uh you know hate mail railing against the decision. Um and and then they go through uh you know they go through a a brief but interesting discussion about uh how Sony is approaching kind of getting back to normal and they they're taking a uh, probably a sensible approach that they've they've called their old contaminated network the black network and they've created a white network so so anyway they've segregated their network uh, along, you know, along the lines of you know, what's been contaminated versus uh, what's been rebuilt, in, they have uh, they've implemented, uh, I think, a pretty draconian email archiving um, scheme, and they have removed the ability for employees to install software. They have implemented two-factor authentication, which, by the way, wasn't two-factor authentication the thing that guy was. Um, you know, was digging on the Sarbanes-Oxley auditor in the article from back in like 2007 saying, you know, we're not a bank. And if we were a bank, then we would be out of business. And if a business, you know, you know, he was also the one who said, I'm not going to spend $10 million to mitigate a $1 million risk. Yeah. Which at a certain point makes sense. But you gotta understand. You gotta understand your risk. Yeah, you gotta understand what the hell your risk is, which he clearly did not. Oh, so yeah, so yeah. There's that, um, and you know the the thing that that struck me as I as I was reading that, especially contrasting it with that previous, um, that previous interview back in two thousand two thousand six two thousand seven. You know, this is this seems a lot like disaster recovery. You know, companies don't want to invest in this stuff. They don't want to uh they don't want to they don't want to swallow hard and take a proactive stance. You know, it is, so if you know if back then if they had spent the 10 million dollars this probably wouldn't have happened. Or or maybe it wouldn't have happened like it like it had. I don't, you know, hard to say. But um you know that that's that's the thing that that concerns me, or that's it just gets under my skin a little bit. What do you think about? Because this is you know been a common sort of debate. Do you think it's valid reporting to really lay all these emails out like this and share all this dirty laundry, or is it just voyeurism and gossiping? Um, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, I mean, it clearly is 
voyeurism. I mean, there's you, you, you know, whether and but but whether or not it is justified, it, I think is a a philosophical question. I mean, I'm I'm kind of glad for my own selfish purposes that they did it. Um, but you know, certainly if I were Sony. I I would not have wanted to do that. I, you know, it would be well, certainly. I'd, I'd be yeah. livid, right? And in fact, you know, one of the stories they, one of the the little story arcs they talk about is how uh, how Sony sick their lawyers after a bunch of uh, media outlets, including Fortune, uh, telling them that they you know basically claiming all sorts of different legal strategies. You know that the that the data was trade secret and proprietary or copyrighted or you know sounded like sounded pretty ridiculous to me um i think the reality is that there's not a there's not a legal defense against it right so whether or not it is moral there's there's no uh no legal barrier to doing so so uh all right any anyhow moving on to our next uh kind of train wreck of a story comes from CSO online. And if I can get this darn ad out of the way, I'll read the story to you. Um, yeah. Hang on. So Lieberman, Mandiant and Verizon are wrong on unstoppable threats. So, um, Lieberman apparently is a vendor and they are, uh, I guess dogging on Mandiant and Verizon, who are being overly opportunistic at these highly advanced threats, uh, and and they are more than happy to come in and help you clean up the the, the mess that these super advanced attackers uh, leave, and you know when they exploit their zero days and all that sort of thing. But they won't tell you how to fix the problem, right? But they'll they'll come in and charge you an arm and a leg. And you know, and then they go on to. Of course, Lieberman has some ideas, like you know that this would all be solved if you did a better job of, of administering your user IDs. Uh, which, oh, by the way, uh, yeah, they make a enterprise password management tool. Um, but that's neither here nor there, right? So, uh, so yeah, Verizon and Mandiant opportunistic taking advantage of you know of these uh these advanced attacks not helping people avoid them not writing data breach investigations reports right not doing that not you know clearly because that would be helping so and and you know mandiant doesn't have reports either talking about I like when these stories come out because it's it's a valid point. Now, mind you, Liber- Lieberman has their own agenda. They're a privileged identity management company, and they're arguing that if you better controlled your identities, uh, you would be able to limit these attacks or stop these attacks. That's its own debate. But this goes back to something you and I have talked about a number of times, which is saying I, from day one, felt when Mandia came out and said there's no way you could have stopped this attack against Sony – that was a disservice to the organization and a disservice to, um, you know, the InfoSec community at large because it's not true. Yeah, 
but I don't think that's what they're talking about here. I, 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 th- I think they're. I think the point of this article is that you know Mandiant and Verizon are you know their their only horse in this race is to you know is to help you come in and and pick up the pieces rather than help you try to avoid it in the first place. But I but I think at least in the case of Verizon, they spend a pretty incredible amount of money producing the the annual data breach investigations report among others which is intended to actually do just that and um now back on your point though i really and i've said this at the time too i really feel like that mandiant letter was part of what they bought like that's you know i don't know if that's part of the statement of work or you know (laughs) Or what? But um, I, you know, I, I I have to believe that Mandiant and others, and I don't have any firsthand knowledge of this, so I'm I'm completely talking out my rear end. But I've got to believe that these big incident response companies, in the same form that any other company would would try to do when they when they look at getting into adjacent markets, right? Is you try to become you know, kind of the full life cycle responder, which includes public relations and things like that. And I, you know, I'm I'm inclined to believe that that's part of, you know, it was a it was part of the package they bought. So, yeah, take that. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, there's probably more to say, but I know we're running long on the on the show, but. Um, I like to see other vendors come out and talk about this, but you know, fundamentally, I still feel that we have a problem if only vendor, in essence, sales. I don't know what's the term we'll use here because here we've got a co-founder, but or a president, I should say. Lieberman. If vendors are where you're getting your knowledge about infosec, you're probably missing out because they all have an agenda. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Agreed. So uh, our last story for tonight comes from ITWorld.com, and the title is Windows XP and Other Obsolete Systems Remain Critical to the Navy's Operations. Uh, actually, that's the subtitle. The, the main title is U.S. Navy's Warfare Systems Command Just Paid Millions to Stay on Windows XP. So uh, apparently the Navy, uh, the, <laughs> the Space and Naval Warfare Command Systems Command, nonetheless, Apparently, it's a hundred thousand workstations that are still running Windows XP, at least as of May. And uh, micro, uh, sorry, the Navy just spent nine point one million dollars to uh, to re- to retain support for Windows XP, Office two thousand three, Exchange two thousand three, and Windows Server two thousand three, and. There's a uh, the the contract I guess has an option that could be worth up to thirty almost thirty one million dollars that goes out to two thousand seventeen. Um, you know, and the, this drew a lot of criticism when it came out. But you know, the the reality is it might be an economical thing. You know, I, we I, I don't really know the reasoning behind why they did it. Um, it's easy to look at them and point, point at them and laugh, but you know, migrating a hundred thousand workstations is not a cheap endeavor. Um, but what I do find interesting is that they decided this was the best option. Now that doesn't mean that they're right. 
but they didn't go the whitelisting route. They didn't go email. They they went patches. Well, we now, don't. That could be. Yeah, we don't know that they're not also doing those other things. That's true, and it could be that they were forced to go down this path, right? They they may not have had the option to really assess what is truly mitigating the risk. And you know. right, right, and apparently some of these are. We don't really know the mix, but I guess some of these are on both classified and unclassified networks. Um, you know, the the thing that concerns me more than anything is is not that they're buying extended support because you know what if you're going to stay on XP like that you know well that's what you need to do right you need to pay for patches uh, yeah. the thing that concerns me is that running Windows XP which is yeah no kidding horrible and then you know but that tells me that that's a failure of asset management yeah long term planning yeah yeah and, yeah. and I think a lot of people are in that boat. So then I, you know, the other thing that occurred to me is, okay, so what are the ethics, if any, and the economics around this? Uh, Microsoft is now creating these patches. So they're doing the regression testing and they're finding security issues and they're throwing it back in XP for the people who pay. But they're only releasing it to the people who pay. Right. Yeah. And I understand that they have a business model and that they need to make money and that this is not a charity uh, and they want to encourage people to upgrade and there's more than just patches that you, you get with upgrades around security. Um, but you could also argue if they really cared about the hygiene and security of the internet, they would release those patches. They've already created them. I don't know. It's an interesting debate. I I, I can see both sides of it. Wow. You're... you're uh... Your Richard Stallman is showing. I didn't say I agree. I said it was an interesting debate. <laughs> and I had no idea you knew that was my name for that. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, you know, it, it, one of the, I guess, one of the interesting things down at the very bottom of this article is that apparently Windows XP still has more market share than than OS ten, which is kind of mind blowing. But, but I guess. You know, it started off at a much bigger, a much bigger base, so maybe that's not so surprising. Um, but again, you know, I, yeah, it, can you can, can we can we throw rocks at the navy and say, oh, you know, they wasted ten million bucks? Maybe, but we, you know, I'd, I'm not as apt to you know, throw them under the bus. I mean, it kind of seems like uh, at least they're not. You know, at least the article isn't that you know, navy got hacked because they. They were running old versions of XP without patches, and you know, I, I don't know, I don't know. I, I guess it's cool to dog on the government. So, damn you, Navy, you, you screwed up. There you go. How's that? <laughs> I have respect for the Navy. I'm not going to dog on them, but uh, I will say that you don't want to be in this position. You don't want to be running XP, or you know, we're coming up on Windows Server 2003, about to go into life in July. Yeah, you, you need you know you've got to figure out a way to move past these things. This is, and it goes back to our earlier discussion, which is that you have to plan for upgrades and migrations, and continuous changes. That's just the way IT works now. Yeah, these are not it's, static. It's not a surprise either, right? You know, I guess that if there is a if there is a criticism of levy, it's that this is not a surprise. I mean, they've been they they I mean, almost from the time XP was released, they were pretty clear about when it was going to go 
out of support. And, you know, so I guess there's that, I suppose. And the $9.1 million they just spent on support is not, is not going towards, you know, replacing the system. So I suppose that's, you know, that's a fair criticism. Well, they, they say they've got an active plan, but this is buying them time. Yep. You know, uh, it's not their money. What do they care? <laughs> That's a joke. That's a joke. Don't don't buy my house. It's a joke. I love you guys. Anyway, any uh anything else? No, I know we uh we've burned up about an hour, so I don't want, I want to be respectful of our listeners' time and we can we can leave it there if you like. All right. I think we'll do that. So uh, thanks again for listening, and uh, if you do like the podcast, give us some iTunes love. We we really enjoy five-star reviews. always makes me very happy. Um, you can find the podcast on the internet, www.defensivesecurity.org, where you will find the links to the stories we talked about tonight and uh, all the back episodes in their respective links. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Callan on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And, you know, by the way, there's there's quite a few people listening to the podcast. Now, Twitter's really a great place to um, you know, not only participate in the community, but just basically get kind of up-to-date news. So it is a time sink, though, but, you know. <laughs> it is. And, hey, a uh, special shout-out to our Patreon donors. Uh, yes. You guys are amazing. I am humbled and honored by your generosity. Thank you. We will talk again next week. Thanks a lot. Take care. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for your time. Bye. You know, we should just, like, drop that. <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing good can come All right. from, from All right. for, okay, continuing so, this. Just so the rest of the listeners know, there was incredibly inflammatory joke that Jerry deleted from the show. But I want I just want you to know what happened in the interest of full disclosure. I made a joke. Jerry thought the joke was too harsh. Jerry's probably right. But that's what happened. Yep. Jerry. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. So um, he's probably gonna cut that too. Yeah. Whatever. So now I want the listeners to know that multiple things have been cut. And and, not, and, and now what? Now what are you going to say? You were dropped on a head during the formative years of reading facial expressions. I don't know. It could be many things. Oh, yeah. I was definitely dropped on my head a whole bunch. Yeah. That's what I thought. Get back in your box. Uh, all right. We should probably do a show, shouldn't we? Oh, shit. We were going to do that, weren't we? <laughs> So, yeah. Because what I was originally thinking about was, wouldn't it be cool if we could have... You're just trying to take over this goddamn show. It took you this long to figure it out. So what I was thinking is that for my show, we would lose a lot of listeners if they knew. I know. There's another soundbite for you. Well, I couldn't find an emoji for that. Well, it was the hashtag wars. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.